0: get back to worshiping. (laughs) Good morning, Christ Church. Hey, it's great to be with you. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. It's great to be in worship with you. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and find your... uh, Christchurch notes—they're there in your worship program. Find a pen or a pencil on the seat back in front of you. You'll need that as we, uh, as you follow along. And while you're getting out your notes, I want to tell you a little bit about what is known as the season of Advent. You know, Advent is a season of the church year. We're in it right now. It begins four Sundays before Christmas. It ends on Christmas Eve. In fact, listen to this: the season of Advent, the first. Sunday Sunday in advent is actually the celebration of a brand new church year it is the beginning of the church year so let me be the first to welcome you a happy new year you know i know we just had thanksgiving we haven't even had christmas yet and i'm wishing you a happy new year but it makes sense theologically even though it sounds odd to our ears you see during the first uh, during the season of advent not only does the church then begin looking forward to celebrating The first coming of Jesus, which was his birth at Christmas time. But even more than that, we Christians begin looking toward the promised second. Coming of Christ. That's what we do during Advent. We look back toward His first coming and we look forward to the promised second coming of Christ, when God will bring down the curtain on history, uh, fi- have the final victory over sin and over death and over the forces of evil, and He will then, as the scriptures say, judge both the living and the dead. So, as we begin off this, begin this first. Uh, Uh, Sunday in this brand new series and brand new season of Advent, I want to give you a quick Advent quiz just to see what you know about the church year called Advent. All right, take a look. Here's the first question. What does the word Advent mean? Does it mean A, before Christmas? Does it mean B, arrival or coming? Does it mean to go on an adventure? All right, so let's find out. Who thinks it's A? Raise your hand, means before Christmas. What happened? What? Oh, they already gave the answer. So, does anybody believe it's A or C? <laughs> it is B. It means arrival. Oh, y'all are so brilliant y'all are brilliant all right all right now we're not going to do that again for the second question i'll call for it so here's the second question all right so like the 40 days of lent advent is a fixed number of days before christmas is that true or false if you believe it's true raise your hand All right. If you believe it's false, raise your hand. It is B, false. It is not a fixed number of days. It is four Sundays before Christmas. All right. So however many days that turns out to be, it is that long. All right. So here's the third question. After the angel visited Mary in Nazareth, where did Mary go? A, to tell Joseph. B, to Jerusalem to tell Elizabeth. Or to Walmart to get some Christmas presents. All right. So, is it A, to tell Joseph? Is it B, to Jerusalem to tell Elizabeth? Is it C, to go to Walmart? All right. Some of you think they're going to Walmart. All right. All right. The answer is actually B. They went to uh, Mary went to Jerusalem to tell her cousin Elizabeth. All right, very good. One more, I think one more. Maybe No, two more, I think. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would also be known as Emmanuel. Now, I've spelled it with an i, it can be spelled with an e or an i. Doesn't matter. Known as Emmanuel, which means what does it mean? A, God with us, B, Christ child, C, Bethlehem. What does it mean? All right. So let's find out. Does it mean A, God with us? Does it mean B, Christ child? Does it mean C, Bethlehem? It is A. You're right. Most of you got that right. Congratulations. Good for you. All right. Last question Where was Jesus born? Was he born in uh, Nazareth? Was he born in Rome? Was he born in Bethlehem? All right, let's find out. Was he born in Nazareth? Raise your hand. All right, was he born in Rome? Raise your hand. Was he born in Bethlehem? Raise your hand. Yeah, y'all are so smart. There it is, it is. See, he was born in Bethlehem. Good for you. So, throughout uh, the month of December... Your pastors are going to be teaching on the meaning behind some of the great, most loved Christmas carols of all time. Uh, also, we're going to hear the stories behind them, and that is how they came to be, why they were written, and who wrote them. We're going to be talking about, uh, over these next few weeks, we're going to be talking about God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, uh, O Come All Ye Faithful, uh, What Child Is This, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. I'm going to be preaching on that one on Christmas Eve, Go Tell It on the Mountain, and uh, on the Sunday after Christmas, Uh, angels from the realms of glory. So we're going to look at all of those, but today we're going to start with one that is really, really, really very appropriate for our first Sunday in Advent, and it is a song called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We'll hear that song uh, if you're not familiar with it. You'll hear it right after uh, the message today during our offering time. And uh, this was actually written by a guy named Charles Wesley, who was the brother of John Wesley, who became the founder of what is the Methodist Church today. And so before we jump into the the meaning and the story behind that hymn, let me tell you a little bit about this guy named Charles Wesley. Go ahead and put his picture up. There he is. There's Charles Wesley. You know... uh, Yeah, when I look at that picture, frankly, it reminds me, you know, my grandmother used to get her hair cut like this uh, when she went to the beauty parlor. You know, when was the last time you heard the word beauty parlor? I all mean, right, where did they go? We used to have them all the time, but now they don't have uh, beauty parlors anymore. But it looks like Charles Wesley went there. Anyway, Charles, uh, as I said, he was the brother of John Wesley. He was born in England in the year 1707. 1707. And get this he was the 18th and final child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. He was the 18th kid and the last of, their, uh, last of their children. He was very fortunate uh, that he actually had a college education. He went to uh, the uh, Oxford University. Oxford University there in Oxford, England. There's a A shot of of uh, Oxford. In fact, just a little bit of trivia. One of their uh, rooms there is called the Great Hall. Go ahead and put the Great Hall there uh, in Oxford. Does this remind you of anything? I say it louder. Yeah, I knew our young people would know it for sure. Yeah, this is the Great Hall. It was modeled—the the the, the uh, Great Hall in uh, in Harry Potter was modeled after this room where Charles and John Wesley would have eaten it one of the in this space uh, while they were there. So uh, Charles, along with his brother John and a guy named George Whitfield, while they're in Oxford. Began what would begin a club, and they called it the Holy Club. The Holy Club, and due to their spiritual disciplines and the, the strict adherence to these spiritual disciplines of. Of uh, Bible study and uh, Holy Communion and visiting the sick and those who were in prison and caring for the poor, all of these kinds of things because of their because of the way they did that so methodically, their peers at Oxford mocked them and eventually labeled them as Methodists because of their method of following the spiritual disciplines, again, of of Bible study and worship and Holy Communion and visiting the sick and those who were in prison. And so that's how we got the name Methodist. It was actually uh, a mocking of this group called the Holy Club. Now, here's something interesting to me is that that Charles Wesley was, uh, was ordained as a pastor in the Church of England in 1735. But later he writes that he didn't even really know Jesus until three years later in 1738. He said that's when he had his salvation experience, was in 1738, three years after being a pastor and after being ordained in the Church of England. Man, listen to this. Over his lifetime, this guy Charles Wesley wrote... More than, slightly more than, 6,500 hymns. Unbelievable in his lifetime. 6,500, including Christ the Lord is Risen Today, that great Easter hymn. And one that we sing here all the time during our Christmas season is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This guy wrote that. Charles Wesley wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, the carol that we're going to be looking at today is not nearly as popular as uh, singing like Joy to the World or as fun to sing as Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but when it comes to sharing the, the freeing and saving grace of Jesus Christ, the song... Come thou long expected Jesus is is unmatched. It is unreal theologically. It is that uh, that incredible. It is an incredible song sharing the gospel of Christ. We're going to be looking at that today. So how did it end up being written? Well, the year now was 1744. Again, Charles was ordained in 1735, he found Jesus in 1738, and now in 1744. He was, he was studying the scripture. And he was studying in the Old Testament a book in the Old Testament called Haggai. Haggai. And some of you probably don't even know there is a book in the Old Testament called Haggai. But it really is there. I took a picture just to make sure that you knew that it is actually there. It is found near the end of the Old Testament. And here's something interesting. It is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Second shortest. It only has two chapters in the entire book the book of Haggai. It was written by the prophet after the same name. And and what he was doing is he was writing about the promised rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, you got to get this so it makes sense to you. That is, for 50 years, at the time of this writing, uh, when Haggai was writing, the people of Israel had been without a place to worship. They had been without a temple. And what happened was uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came swooping into Jerusalem and with ramrods and all kinds of implements began banging at the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And finally they broke through. And when they broke through the wall, it was chaos. And I mean chaos. They tore up everything. They set people's homes ablaze. They rounded up the brightest and the best uh, 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 people of Israel and carted them back off to Babylon. And to make sure that they didn't leave any stone unturned, the coup de grace for the Babylonians was they stormed up the Temple Mount and tore that stone temple down, stone by stone by stone by stone, until it was nothing but a pile of rubble. And it was... They left, the Babylonians left Jerusalem in chaos. Now, you may think, well... You know, this is kind of sad with all the Babylonians there and they did all of that, but why couldn't the the people of Israel who were left just find another place to worship? Why didn't they just go to some place that hadn't been torn apart and worship there? Well, you know, that's a legit question for Christians to ask because that's what we'd do. But for the Jews it was very different. They couldn't do that because, listen, you know, when for the Jews, they they understood that God did not dwell inside the people. I mean, we know that wherever two or three of us are gathered, the Lord is in our midst. We can, we can go anywhere, out into the parking lot under the trees, or into some abandoned warehouse and worship. We can worship wherever we are. The problem was they couldn't do that because for them, they understood that God dwelled only in the temple. That is, the earthly dwelling place of God was in the temple. And more specifically, behind the curtain in a room called the Holy of Holies and even more specifically than that, right here, I mean, between these two uh, seraphim here, Right here is where God dwelled. It was called the mercy seat of God. And on this, the Ark of the Covenant is what this is called. That's the spot that God dwelled. Now, imagine if, if the temple is now destroyed, the Holy of Holies is gone. you know what that means? That God is gone too. So for 50 years God was not there and because God was not there there was no forgiveness of sin because the only place that could happen was there in the temple where sacrifice was made. So the presence of God vanished and there was no forgiveness of sin. So for 50 years this was going on. now Haggai began to write about the promised rebuilding of the temple, and matter of fact, he writes these words. Check it out. It says this: God is saying, God is speaking through Haggai, saying, "When I return, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and that and what is desired by all nations will come." And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Charles read those words... And the promise that God would one day rebuild or shake the heavens and the earth and rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. And that uh, and this whole business of shaking the heavens and the earth, that was, a, that was an allusion to the fact that what God was going to do was he was going to bring, bring judgment on the political leaders and on their political policies that ensured and re, that the poor remained poor and the oppressed remained oppressed that God was going to do something about that when, the, when he would come back and shake the heavens of the earth. And as he was thinking about that and what that meant, Charles began thinking about life in England right where he lived. In 17th century England, life was horrible. There were there were orphans who were living and sleeping on the streets because society virtually ignored them there were there were out of work people everywhere and mostly it was the husbands that were working outside the house. And they were, they, they, they had either had no work and so the families could not support themselves and so there were starving families. And even those who were working for the majority of the people in England at that moment, they couldn't make enough to go from paycheck to paycheck. And so even though families may be intact, they didn't have enough to eat. And it was a horrible situation. And and for Charles and the the group of the holy club, the the Methodists, well let me tell you, they, they took that business seriously and yeah, they took care of the orphans they fed the poor. They visited the sick. They went to the prisons. They did all of these things that the scripture says that we should as we live out the gospel life. But the need was so overwhelming that Charles just became, just became overwhelmed at, at, the, at the need that was before him. And so he wrote a prayer. And he wrote this prayer and it was this, these words. He said, come thou long expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. And by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. And he wrote those words and eventually put them to music. And every time we sing that song, what we're proclaiming is this, and I want you to write this down, is that that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah, that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah, yeah, but it's more than that. He's also the coming King. It's that looking back to to when Jesus came for the first time and then the coming king is when we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Every time we sing that song, every time you hear it on the radio, that's what it's talking about. It's long, come thou long expected Jesus, that, that first coming. But it also is also looking forward to the promised coming of Jesus to the promise coming of Jesus. That first line of the carol, come thou long expected Jesus. You know, do you remember when, I guess mostly when you were a kid and your parents or, uh, or somebody that you uh, knew and loved made you a promise, but for some reason was unable to keep that promise? Do you remember what that felt like to to... To have a promise made to you and then not kept? Well, maybe, it, it, I know it happens to adults too, like, like the, the, the promise, let's say, of, uh, of a promotion. Maybe your boss or your company has promised you a promotion and then it never materialized. Or maybe it was the promise of marriage ends in a broken engagement. Whatever it may be. It, broken promises leave you longing for, for something. I mean, longing to be healed. Longing to be whole. Longing for these promises to actually one day be fulfilled. And for the, for the Israelites here, when we're talking about this long-expected Messiah, for the Israelites, they have been longing for this coming king, this coming Messiah. In fact, 700 years, listen to this, 700 years before Jesus actually was born on Christmas, the prophet uh, uh, Isaiah said these words. He said, for to us a child is born, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called, let's read it together, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Isaiah was pointing that one day God was going to send the Messiah into the world and make things right. For 700 years, people have Israel hang on to that to that promise. But imagine this, imagine, you know, we're reading these words 200 and uh, excuse me, 2019 years after Jesus was born. We knew that he was coming. Imagine if you were the original hearers of this 700 years before Jesus was born. 24 generations of people were born and died and never saw Jesus. From the time those words were written, 24 generations of people came and died. For the while, Israel was really hanging on to that promise. But you know what? By the time Jesus came, there were only a handful of people who were really holding on to the promise that one day God would in fact Fulfill the promise that he made seven hundred years before, and you may think, well, you know well let me go, let me say it this way: when Charles Wesley wrote these words, he really wasn't looking backward to the to the 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 first coming of Jesus at Christmas. he was thinking about. How his world needs saving now. And he was looking toward the promise of the second coming of Jesus. Come, Lord, uh, come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set his people free. Remember what he was looking at every day, the orphans living and sleeping on the street, men and women unable to feed their families, people starving left and right in London. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible situation. And he started thinking, come thou long expected Jesus, come again, in other words. Now, I got to tell you, and I admit freely actually, that I don't think that often about the second coming of Jesus. I just don't think about it that often. You know, somebody will say, well, you know, pastor, do you believe that one day Jesus will return? Well, I absolutely do believe that. I believe that Jesus will one day return again. You know, the fact is that, you know, the second coming of of Christ is one of the great tenets of the Christian faith. Every one of our creeds has something to say about that. The Apostles' Creed, the the oldest creed that we have, says this, that, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That he will, look at these two words, he will do what? He will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's in the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed that many of you grew up with says this, from thence he shall, here are the two words, what are they? come again. Yeah, he will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. Quick is an old English word for living, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. In fact, in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the return of Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, listen to this, 20, out of the 27 books in the New Testament, 23 of those books have something to say about the return of Jesus one day. In fact, Jesus said this about himself. He said, look at this, from uh, Matthew 24, he says, And then at last the signal of my coming will appear in the heavens, and the nations of the world will see me arrive in the clouds of heaven. And I shall send forth my angels, and they shall gather my chosen ones from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. So, yeah, I do believe that Jesus will come back one day, but I just don't often think about it. You know, but I want to tell you just a real quick story. I know i got to get moving, but I want to tell you this quick story. Even though I don't think about it very often, I can tell you about somebody who, a group of people who do, and that's, these are my friends in Kenya. My friends in Kenya Will regularly say something about until the coming of until until Jesus comes again, or uh, in something like that. They will use that phrase with some regularity. And I remember that I was standing out on a field this past August with a group of my Kenyan friends, and one of the a, a cow. Actually, just came walking by uh, through where we were standing, and who knows where they was going. But the cow just went on by, and I noticed that the cow looked awfully scrawny. I mean, you could kind of see the bones in the cow, and and I just happened to make an offhand remark that said, you know, this the cows look awfully skinny and a lot skinnier than the cows that I happened to see you know, whenever I happen to see a cow, don't see many in Fairfax County, but uh, whenever I happen to see a cow in the United States, uh, they don't look so skinny or bony. And one of my Kenyan friends said, he said, well, that's, he said, just like the cows are just like the people. Not enough to eat. And we'll be like that until Jesus comes back. You know, and it really got me thinking. It was kind of like Charles Wesley when, when he was writing the song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus and recognizing what was happening in his own, in his own society. S- starving families and children. Living on the street. Eating and sleeping and living on the street with, with absolutely nothing. And praying that Jesus would return. And set things right just got me thinking about, for most of us, just how fortunate we really are. Let me finish up this song. In the rest of that verse, it declares this, that in Christ we have freedom. I want you to write that in. In Christ we have freedom. The words are the song, Born to set thy people free. You know, uh, Paul, when he was writing to the church in Galatia, uh, he wrote these words. He said, let me be clear. The anointed one has set us free. Not partially, but completely and wonderfully free. We must always cherish this truth and stubbornly, look at this, refuse to go back to the bondage of our past. In other words, to refuse to allow fear and sin to ruin our lives. That's what he's talking about. To remind us that, that fear is not your master. God has never called his people to live in fear. For your sins have been washed away. You've been loved by the one and only who gave his life for you. We need not live our life in fear because in Christ we have what? We have freedom. In Christ, we have freedom. All right. Second thing I want you to see is that in Christ, we have rest. Let us find our what? Rest in thee. Let us find our rest in thee. In fact, in 1 Peter, we find these words. You can... You trust, your trust can be in God who raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. And now your faith and hope can do what? Can rest in him alone. Can rest in him alone. You know, the question is, I guess, do you really believe that God is who he claims to be? Do you believe that God is really the one who claims to be? Do we, do we believe that God is good? That God is, that God is really powerful? Do you really believe that God loves you? You know, I think those are the kind of questions that are really at the heart of this thing because if you believe those things, are you able to rest in that? That is, are you able to to live into that freedom that God has given us and relax in knowing that God is the one he claims to be? That he is good, that he is powerful, that he does wash away all of our sins, that he does love us beyond anything that we could think or imagine. Can you find rest? Let us, this is what Charles was praying, let us find rest in thee. You know, the problem is, as I said before, that, that fear keeps us from resting. Worry keeps us from resting. Worry keeps us from living in that freedom that Christ has come to give us. And for Charles, this was a big deal. He's saying, Lord, you know, when you come, we'll be able to rest in you because of your promise coming. Let us find our rest. Deliver us. Set us free. Let me tell you something real quick about worry and then uh, we'll move on. And this first of all I want you to write this down. Worry is unreasonable. It keeps you locked up. It's unreasonable. Worry's unreasonable. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. His greatest most famous sermon that he ever preached was on the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he said these this he said, "Do not worry about your life or what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you'll wear." Is life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? See, and look, Jesus is saying, you know, if it's not going to last, don't worry about it. If it's not going to last, don't worry about it. To worry about something that, that you can't change is just stupid. If you can't change it, you can't change it. And to worry about something you can't change is useless. But either way, it's unreasonable to worry about It It is not life more than food and your body more than the clothes you wear. Look, if you can't change it, don't worry about it. It's unreasonable. Worry also is unhelpful. It's also unhelpful. Matter of fact, Jesus, once again, Sermon on the Mount, next verse said this, Can any of you add a single hour to your life by worrying? Boy, what a question, huh? Can we add even a single hour to our life by, by uh, worrying? You know, when you worry about a problem, it doesn't bring you one inch closer to a solution. Do you know that? Think about that. You can worry about it, it doesn't bring you one inch closer to the solution. You know, it's like, Now, I love sitting in a rocking chair, I admit. But it's kind of like sitting in a rocking chair. A lot of activity, a lot of energy, a lot of motion, but you haven't gone anywhere, right? Yeah, it's not helpful. Worry doesn't change anything except you. It does change you because it makes you miserable. That's what happens when we worry. Finally, the worry is unnecessary It's unnecessary. Jesus, once again, uh, Sermon on the Mount, next verse says this, if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you? You know, if you trust in God, he's saying, look, why worry? The King of kings and the Lord of lords knows you loves you and surrounds you with his presence. In Christ we have freedom and rest. Come thou long expected Jesus. Come. Give us freedom and give us rest. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for gathering us in this place that we may Be yours with all that we are and all that we have. Lord, we see the stuff that's happening in our own world. And many of us are are saying, come thou long-expected Jesus. Come do something in our own society, in our own world. And help us, Lord, to live out this gospel life so that we care for the poor and we care for the sick and we care for the hurting. Lord, help us to live out this gospel life in a way that really makes the world a better place. When we see those who are hurting and those who are suffering, especially now around Christmas time and especially now as we're heading into the winter... We pray, Heavenly Father, that we may be the answer to their prayers. You have blessed us abundantly. May we use those blessings to be a blessing to others. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set your people free. We give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.